0: I need to not go outside at all. Yeah, don't go outside when you go to America. Just as a general rule, don't go outside in America. (laughs) User Area 61.
1: I'm Joe. I'm Alan. And I'm Dan. We're back. And let's start with a somewhat controversial topic, a question that you posed, Alan, and that is, is it time to give Microsoft the benefit of the doubt on their Linux love? No, fuck him is what I would say.
0: (laughs) Of course, yes. (laughs) Uh, I, I don't know, it's just... I, I personally didn't like Microsoft back in the day, partly because of their questionable business practices around, and I'm talking way, way back in the day, like DR DOS and Novell Netware and, you know, incompatibilities between non-Microsoft versions of DOS and Microsoft products and stuff like that used to irritate me. And then it got to irritate me when their software products didn't work very well and crashed all the time. And I had to go through many years of being a support person of Microsoft stuff and, You know, the DOJ stuff and, you know, so many other things. All those things used to really irritate me about Microsoft. But I don't know if it's because I've got older and I'm a bit more chilled or the fact that I don't use Microsoft products very often, combined with, I think, a change in attitude from Microsoft uh, after a change in leadership over the last few years. And I, I feel like we really should cut them some slack and see where this goes because... They have been contributing way more to the open source ecosystem. If you consider buying GitHub to be contributing to the open source ecosystem in terms of they now own all the open source code that's on GitHub, right? Um, I just feel like maybe it's time to cut them some slack and maybe we should all put some of those bygones
2: bygones behind us and see where this goes. It definitely seems like... The company culture has kind of shifted and maybe that's a function of like their more recent acquisitions even. But, um, I know like a bunch of people that were at Xamarin who are now working on like GitHub and things like that. And I think it's really cool to see these people who I've known through open source, uh, working on Microsoft stuff and it being stuff that you don't really think about being Microsoft-y. I mean, I guess GitHub is an enterprise product, but it doesn't feel like what we think of when we used to think of what kind of software does Microsoft make.
0: Right. They're working on stuff that makes the life of open source developers easier, whether it's enabling new features in in GitHub or open sourcing tools or supporting open source conferences. When I was at Scale last weekend, there was a Microsoft booth there, and there were a bunch of little tux penguins on top of the Microsoft booth, and they were talking about their Azure stuff that has Linux at the heart. And it was interesting talking to representatives from Microsoft about the stuff they do using Linux. And they're still not quite there i mean still internally there there's still people who've been there a long time who are very deeply technical and know a lot of the processes and the technologies inside microsoft so when they start playing with linux maybe they make some mistakes maybe they choose the wrong distro in inverted commas or maybe they um architect it in strange ways that we in the linux world will think oh what are they doing But I think that part of a function of them being so huge and so bought into their own technologies for such a long period of time that in the short period that they have been friendly to Linux, it's taking them a while to get, get started. It's not, it's not like instantly you can expect a company, a ship of that size to switch and, you know, be perfect in everything they do, which is why I think we should give them some time.
1: Can we just talk about Red Hat for a second? right now let's just imagine that IBM haven't bought them yet and so we're just talking about the red hat side of things that is a company who chooses to use open source and linux because of pragmatic reasons because it is better than the alternative and that whole development model really works so my my question is of red hat do you think that it is pure pragmatic reasons and pure financial reasons that drives them to do so and not make things proprietary, or is there an ideological reason? And then apply that to Microsoft and ask yourself, are Microsoft embracing Linux and open source because it's the thing that makes money these days, or because of any other reason? Is there any free software,
0: um, anything other than pragmatic reason for that? Are you aiming for the the triple E embrace, extend, extinguish that they're somehow doing this for nefarious reasons. And this is a giant Trojan horse. No, that's going to take 10 years for them to materialize. And then the guys are going to pop out and go, haha, we own all your code and you're screwed. No, because the GPL and even more permissive
1: licenses essentially prevent that from happening. I don't think that that is the, the strategy at all. I think that it is just a pure pragmatic play because they're following the
0: money. And the money is in open source. Right. But part of that is also internally, they would have had uh, standards and processes that they would have followed when releasing software. And those standards would not have been make it open source. Anyway, near the top of that list. And that seems to be a, a feature now that wasn't previously and you and i'm not saying necessarily anything to do with linux but just software when they make software they're now erring towards making some of that new software open source so it's not necessarily anything to do with the linux love but it's loving or appreciating the value of having open source software and the community you get around that and the feedback you get from developers and Yeah, maybe it is pragmatism, but maybe it's also realizing that it's the way things are done these days.
2: I definitely think we should be asking like profit motive questions of any corporation though, right? Whether that's Microsoft or Canonical or Red Hat or even little tiny ones like Elementary, I think it matters how people make their money is going to dictate how the company operates. I think regardless of what individuals within the company believe, so If using open source and promoting open source and using Linux furthers Microsoft's business model, I think that's a good thing. I think that helps steer the ship of the company in the direction that's more in line with the things that we're interested in.
1: Well, I agree completely. I think that it is ultimately a good thing that they have realized that there's more money in it. But I do fear that if the industry changes again, and, you know, it, it doesn't change overnight, does it? It happens gradually. And we've moved to this sort of services-based model now where it makes sense to have things open source. But if it moves away from that, then they will drop open source like hot potato and go back to being proprietary bastards.
2: Well, that's kind of what we saw happen to Apple more, right? Uh, they seemingly used to be a lot more involved in open source technologies. And they recently, like, ditched things like the common Unix printer system and um, technologies like that, right? They're starting to move more towards their own proprietary technologies, moving towards like licensed processor tar- architectures. I think Apple are very different. I, I,
0: they haven't had the same switch that Microsoft have had. Um, and I don't think Apple ever were really embracing open source at all. They made promises about things. And the only massive thing that I can think that they have open sourced is the Swift programming language. That's the only only significant thing that they've contributed recently. And okay, it's rather significant, a new programming language, but I don't see them in the same way that I see Microsoft.
1: Well, one of the massive differences between Microsoft and Apple is that Apple is almost completely targeted at consumers and end users, whereas Microsoft is much more about the cloud and enterprise and developers. Maybe.
0: Maybe we should come back to this subject in a few years and see if it's changed. (laughs) Maybe we should right hashtag
1: ask error if you could only watch one film for the rest of your life what would it be dan what's yours
2: oh man so i i'm kind of thinking about this one right and i'm thinking like i need more parameters like is it just one (laughs) film or can it be like a film series like do you really want to only watch like the first Harry Potter film or like Lord of the Rings forever if you can't watch any of the other ones? Is there any kind of like series clause there?
0: Well, yeah, but any film should be able to stand on its own merit. You can't go to the cinema and watch a film and it like cut. Like (laughs) there's there's gotta be it's it's gotta have a start, middle, and end. And so you could watch that as a standalone film. And so when when the second and third and the 8th and the 12th and the 15th harry potter films didn't exist the first film did and you could take that in its isolation
2: so i guess if it's one film in isolation and you're not including series because that was my thing if you could do a series it would be like what's the longest series that i like so i could just watch the whole thing right but um i feel like lord of the rings like extended would still not be like like you gotta watch this one over and over again for the rest of your life oh man it's got to be something fun with variety like uh i don't know princess bride
0: (laughs) (laughs) inconceivable um right poppy what's yours oh dear so i i deliberated and i thought actually i could uh reuse my answer to the previous question of (laughs) uh, what film have you only seen once uh dr Zhivago. and i thought maybe i could watch that again because it's quite long and i quite enjoyed (laughs) it when i saw it once so maybe i could see it a few more times i thought maybe i'd do that one and then i thought what's the film i have already watched more than any other film in my entire life and that would be airplane i've watched that hundreds of times i've lost count of the number of times i watched that film but it's ridiculous number of times i had it on vhs and the tape snapped i'd watched it that many times (laughs) um but actually i think the one i would choose would be the popular time. well i wouldn't say popular maybe the niche uh time travel film primer simply because I don't understand it, and I think I need to watch it <laughs> numerous times to be able to understand it. And so this would give me an opportunity to watch it over and over again, and then maybe I'll get it.
1: Yeah, I've seen that once, and I didn't get it at all. So, yeah, that's a good good choice. My wife actually said Dr. Zhivago, funnily enough. Huh. So there you go, you've got something in common-ish. What about you then, Joe? I think I would have to go for Police Academy 5 Assignment Miami Beach. <laughs> No, not really. Of course, although that is a classic. I do like the police academy movies. No, right. I'm going to tell you what is the best movie of all time, and that's what I would watch over and over again. So this movie has everything: has action, a great story, has comedy, has great actors. Any idea what we're talking about yet? Is it Freddy Got Fingered? <laughs> no, it's not Freddy Got Fingered. Well, I'll give you more clues. Okay. It's got John Malkovich in it. Is it being John Malkovich? (laughs) No, no. That is a great movie, but it's not that. No. It's got Steve Buscemi in it. You lost me. Okay. It's got Nicolas Cage in it.
2: This gets harder and harder to guess. (laughs) It's
1: the best movie of all time, Con Air. Uh
0: Oh. (laughs) You don't agree, then? It wasn't memorable for me. I mean... Really? Yeah, I've seen it, but meh. Honestly, it is the best movie of all time. It has everything. It doesn't have an inflatable co-pilot like Airplane. (laughs) (laughs) And it it doesn't have a a long, sweeping storyline across many, many years like Dr. Zhivago. And it doesn't have a time machine like Primer. So no, it's not the best film.
2: Does it have a six-fingered man?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so a question that you put
1: to us, Dan, was, is technological change really accelerating? So put your pitch to us.
2: I was just thinking the other day, you know, it kind of feels like maybe that millennials and like Gen Xers are at this kind of weird intersection in time where we've gone through these major reinventions of pretty much every piece of tech in our lives since our early childhood. And it's still happening And if you just take like one thing, for example, like data storage, you can see like how many changes have we gone through in data storage in the last like 20 or so years, right? And we've had the smartphone and the internet and now like internet of things. And like it just seems like it just keeps compounding. So I guess my question is. Is this really a unique experience for this period in time? Or is technology always changed like this? Or are future generations going to feel like it's even more so?
0: I I, I have difficulty with this because I always find that these deep thoughtfulness about and navel-gazing about how our current generation is changing in whatever way, whether it's technologically or um, society in general or relationships or whatever, or the food we eat, our diet... I think these are very difficult to ascertain when we are the observers and we are the participants. Like if, if you look back over previous generations, there are lots of different things that have changed over the years as a result of things like, um, wars or the pill liberating women in the sixties and, the MTV generation in the 80s, you know, th- things changed in lots of different ways. And we look back, and it's only once we look back that we can see how that's changed. And I i have a horrible feeling that our navel-gazing about what's going on right now, we think, oh, wow, look, hard drives have become so small, and data storage is so interesting. But actually, I think we will look back at the storage stuff, as an example, in the same way that we now look back at Sony memory sticks, or the way we look back at those flash cards that we used to put in the Rio MP3 player, the first, those flat things that, that I've long forgotten the name of that, you know, they're just an archaic thing, like a Baker-like telephone. They're just things, technolo- technological things that at the time were particularly interesting and maybe revolutionary. But in 20 to 30 years, We'll look back and think, wow, that was ridiculous. Why did we obsess over that thing? It's now holographic memory and all these other things are completely stupid. I think it's difficult for us to gauge the effect of all these things until we have hindsight. And we won't get that for some years.
1: Well, that's true for small things like memory storage or whatever. And, you know, you can look at the amounts of RAM and stuff in computers from now versus 20 or 30 years ago, and it's just ridiculously improved now. But I think that the internet and the web and now the post-web situation, I don't even know what you would call it, with apps that use some web technologies and ultimately use the internet. So let's just call it the internet for now. The way that has changed things, I think, is fundamental. I think is is nothing has happened like this since the invention of electricity in terms of societal change and arguably it's a more spectacular change than even the invention of electricity because it's made the world much smaller it's made us be able to sit here okay me and you Popey, are like what like 30 40 miles away from each other but dan you're like eight thousand miles away or something and we can talk to each other like we're in the same room for free and you know that's the example everyone uses but it's easy to take that for granted whereas 30 years ago it would have cost an absolute fortune to do something like this I mean it just simply wouldn't have been possible to get us to sit here and do high quality recordings and then send them and sync them up and all the rest of it it would have taken several days for you to courier a tape to me or whatever so that I could edit it together and you know that's just one tiny example but the society has just changed so massively in the last 30 years that I don't think there's be, ever been anything comparable to it in terms of the the difference in people's everyday lives.
0: I'm not so sure that I mean the yes we've changed dramatically and yes the internet has been an enabler for many things be it the Arab spring or dissemination of information or the ability for people to like the, the 24 hour news cycle is now the minute by minute news cycle. You know, that, that speed of access to information. Um, you know, in the past where I would have to read the new morning newspaper to find out what vote happened in parliament the night before. And then years later, listen to the radio to hear it, uh, live. And now I can watch it live streamed in HD as it happens. Those are enablers. But the thing that's more important is what then the net result of that would be. So, you know, back in the early 1900s, you know, there were millions killed in wars and millions wounded. And that had an impact on the way life happened for who was left behind afterwards. It wasn't necessarily that it was it, the war had uh, an impact and the internet has an impact but it's difficult for us to know what that impact will be until we look back on it if that makes sense
2: yeah that's a really good point and maybe maybe that is the direct answer to my question of like did previous generations feel like the rate of technological change impacted their lives as much and maybe they did and i guess that just leaves do we feel like there's a change on the scale of something like the internet that is like, what, what's the next thing that's so big? Are we, are we kind of at a point where it's like, we've gone through this massive revolution and then we're going to hang out for a while until we have like fast space travel or like what is going to happen to the next generation in terms of is technology accelerating or Has it kind of, like, does it go in, like, lulls or, like, hills and valleys?
1: Well, I think when it comes to technology, it has been almost sort of exponential, hasn't it? And I think that, I mentioned electricity, that has enabled all of the technological advances that we've seen. It started with the transistor and everything, and now we've got these ridiculously fast processes and everything, and it all comes from electricity. Without that, we'd have nothing. And if you look at the course of human history in the last hundred or so years that we've had electricity, maybe a bit longer than that, 150, we've seen these massive, massive changes. And so I would imagine that if we don't kill ourselves, then we'll probably continue to advance and it'll be just absolutely crazy. Although, I don't know, if you think about one impact the internet has had, and that is you wouldn't have had Trump and Brexit without the internet, I don't think. And without getting into how we feel about those things and whether they're good or not. There's no argument that things have changed as a result of that. And who knows what the next thing will be. It has fundamentally changed fundamental parts of our lives, like politics and how we actually view the world. And it's made it much more polarized. That's not a controversial thing to say that. And so what is it going to continue to polarize us technology or is it going to eventually bring us back together because i can't see us ever going out to the stars and everything unless we actually can come back together and not
0: be polarized but i just somehow don't see that happening i don't know that you can say we wouldn't have had this or we wouldn't have had that i find it very difficult to um to speak in terms of uh predictions of how the world would have been different and try and get it right you know, I, I think that's a very difficult and dangerous game to play because, um, you know, if, if Hitler didn't exist, would there have been the Nazi party? Probably. Uh, it would have been somebody else who happened to be in that place at that time with those, you know, with those thoughts. Um, if there's a void, someone comes along to fill it. And I think if it wasn't, um, Trump, it could well have been someone else who had. Uh, right-leaning tendencies who would have come to power. And whether we had Twitter and the internet and access to information, it, I don't know that that necessarily would have played out differently. But it's impossible to tell without a time machine and, you know, A-B testing of the human <laughs> humankind. Yeah, but
1: we wouldn't have had such echo chambers without the internet, would we? It just wouldn't have been possible for people from all over the country or the world to get together and confirm
0: each other's views. I've come to the conclusion that these people that I find objectionable online always existed. They were already always there and they were hanging around with other people who were objectionable to my sensibilities in the same way that I still exist, you know, to against their sensibilities. And I, I am, you know, the other end of whatever the political social scale from them. I think these people already existed. What's just made it hard is that we're now seeing it all. Like these people who lived in that part of the country you don't like, who talked with other people from that part of the country you don't like, they were there anyway, whether Twitter existed or not, whether the internet existed or not. And they were talking about these things, whether you like it or not. And they were maybe mobilizing in small groups and maybe building communities and clubs together, doing objectionable things that you and I might not like, but they were there. The, the internet didn't make these people happen. These people happened already. You just now know about them. Well, yeah, they were there already, but the internet has
1: facilitated them growing and, and coming together. You had a bunch of very small groups together that weren't very powerful, who now through the internet have come together and become much more powerful and had much more of a voice. And that's a good thing in to
0: depending on your political view. Right. And similarly in, you know, the Arab world, there have been uprisings in countries where people were being oppressed. And so, and at the opposite end of the scale, there are people being oppressed right now in other countries where, you know, the, the governments are limiting access to information, whether that's in China or America or wherever, uh, or the UK, in fact, going back to the point that Dan made about technology, I, I think again, technology is an enabler. We will look back on this age and see that the things that changed, the technology will be a footnote. Like the fact that it was spinning hard drives or SSDs or, or mobile phones will be a detail, but the broader strokes will be something much bigger. Whether it's revolutions or borders changing or splitting up of, of uh, trade blocks or whatever it might be, those are much bigger things, and those will be enabled by these these technologies. I think. Right, a hashtag ask error, which is very
1: much aimed at one of us. Can you guess who? What's the difference between UX and UI? And why do you get so annoyed when people confuse them or lump them together?
0: Hmm, who might answer this one? I'm glad you asked this question, Joe. Thanks.
2: Yeah, answer it for us, Alan.
0: <laughs> I have no idea. It clearly isn't aimed at me. I get the two mixed up myself. So Dan, tell us a story.
2: Okay, so you go into a restaurant, right? And you order a nice, big piece of deep dish Chicago-style pizza, because that's what kind of pizza you want. And you pick up your fork, and your fork is the UI. It is the interface that you use to consume your pizza, right? If you're eating a New York-style pizza, you know, you're folding it, and you're using your hands, and your hand is the interface that you're using to consume that pizza, right? The user experience is the table setting and the server and the music and the decor of the restaurant. It's the flyer that you got advertising the restaurant a week before. It's the email that they sent afterwards asking how your dining experience was. That's your user experience. It's it's everything that is all around the consumption of the product. And it's not just the product itself. So it's more of a holistic view of how do you interact with the organization that produces the product and the product uh, throughout the entire life cycle of you knowing that they exist.
1: Okay, so that's how restaurants work. I don't understand. I did not understand your analogy, Dan. Please Please explain to me how this works with software.
2: Right. So the same thing happens with software, right? Is you have an interface of some kind that you interact with in order to accomplish a task. And that interface is probably built with a toolkit and you interact with it by using a mouse and all of these things, right? This is all the interface between you and the software. It's how you touch and interact it. But your user experience isn't just when you're using the software. Your user experience is holistic. It's uh, did you get contacted by a sales representative? Do you have customer support helping you? Is there a wiki? Uh, is there a GitHub issue tracker? Like, how did you hear about the software? How do you recommend the software to a friend? Like, that's your user experience. It's whole life cycle. Do you feel
1: educated now, Joe? I do feel educated, actually, because that was not my understanding. My understanding was, I don't know, really, they, they were somewhat interchangeable that your experience very much depends on the interface. I didn't realize that it was stuff outside of the direct. Um, So you're saying like your experience even within an IRC channel, if you go and seek support or something like that.
2: Right, right, yeah. So uh, the interface that you're interacting with is the IRC client, right? But the experience you're having depends on like who you're talking to on the other side and how they interact with you.
1: Right, and so the second part of the question, why do you get so pissed off when people lump them together?
2: I don't know about pissed off, but it is like, uh, it's not really the same thing, like... I know, I know your, what you mean, but it's, I'm being pedantic about it.
1: So the worst thing to see is UX slash UI, then just as one thing.
2: Yeah, because like, especially if it's someone who's a, like a product manager or something, because then you're like, ah, oh, like a whole story of whatever they're producing is missing.
1: Do you feel educated, Poppy? Totally. <laughs> right then. A very serious topic it's quite clear that none of us are religious or believe in god and we've touched on that before but i wanted to go into a bit more depth and without being too offensive to people who do (laughs) believe in god or follow religion why
2: do you need to say
0: that why why did you need to say that
1: no offense but yeah no offense but you're wrong no but i want to know why why do you two not believe in god
0: or religion I have for a long time thought that it was a bit ludicrous to believe in, you know, bloke in the sky. And I've thought for a very long time that we can explain most things. Like it used to be that humans couldn't explain stuff. And so we would attribute that um, mist in the, in the forest to, you know, some spirit or god or whatever or the fact the sun came up was a god and now we've been able to explain why mist hangs in a swamp and we know why uh the sun comes up every day and we know why lightning happens you know we can explain these all and i'm I'm not trying to say it's all science but there are really good plausible explanations with data and evidence to explain all these things and um i find I find those explanations are way better than it was some bloke or something or some entity that made it happen and it wasn't a, a significant amount of precipitation mixed with a high-pressure weather system moving across um, a particular piece of land that caused you know caused the lightning to happen or whatever, Whatever. I'm not a weather person. Yeah, get you with the meteorological uh, knowledge there. Yeah, it's, but like we can explain that stuff. I, I am not an expert in any of those things, but I can read science books and I can listen to people that you might call an expert about these things. And that makes sense. And the problem I have is that religion just doesn't make sense to me. I can, I can understand why people need, um, a group, a community and they need some, uh, something outside themselves that makes them feel good, uh, whether it's the the aspect of people supporting them through difficult times or the camaraderie and friendship of others. I can understand all of that, but I can't understand the requirement to blame it on some text written in a book from a very long time ago that's been mistranslated by other people some long time after those people were dead – I find that somewhat ludicrous and a bit strange and it's difficult because I know other people cling to this stuff very, very closely and they believe it very strongly and it's a real part of their lives. Uh Some of my friends are like deeply religious and I, I find it difficult because I just can't understand other than the, the companionship and the friendship and the community. I can't understand why you would want to believe this ludicrous stuff in a book from hundreds of years ago.
1: You realize that you've just described the Linux community. (laughs) Why would you want to believe that desktop Linux was not shit? Basically, you could substitute all of that. So uh, maybe that explains it to you. Um, Well, yeah, I mean, I I would imagine that, Dan, you're pretty much on the same page and I'm on the same page there when it comes to following an organized religion, right? Uh, That I generally take as axiomatic. Uh, Maybe that's wrong. Maybe I should give more time to... Those debates or whatever. But what I'm far more interested in is the God aspect of it. Because although we have a fair understanding of the universe in terms of physics and chemistry and everything, we don't have an understanding yet of the beginning of everything. We know that it was the Big Bang or we think it was. And we have a fair idea of what happened milliseconds or even microseconds or even less than that afterwards. But we have no clue what happened before that or whether even before that existed, whether that's even just a ridiculous question to ask, what happened before the Big Bang. There are a lot of unanswered questions. And those questions could be answered by some sort of being, for want of a better word, some sort of God, some some higher power, whatever you want to call it. And for me, that is a far more interesting debate than the sort of nuts and bolts of religion, which to me... Seems to be quite clearly man made and answered questions that were at the time unanswerable, but now are quite answerable via science. And I, I suppose you could then extrapolate that back to what I've just said about the beginning of the universe. And perhaps once we have a greater understanding of the universe, we will then be able to explain that there is no God. But that's the one aspect of it that I find. Interesting. I mean, Dan, I didn't give you a chance on the religion thing, but, I mean, are you in agreement with that, about the religion being man-made and explained by science and whatnot?
2: Yeah, I think, like, in and of itself, religion probably was necessary for human development. If you look at, like, you know, the laws of ancient Mesopotamian religion here, they have things like, don't eat the shellfish, which is like, uh, you know, Steve got sick and must have been God, so don't do that. God doesn't like it, you know? So I think that those things were probably important until we realized like, oh, well, you got to cook things correctly. And there's temperatures that we cook things to so that they're safe to consume. So I think that religion as a concept isn't necessarily bad or evil, but maybe just kind of dated and not really necessary. Um, but I think in, in general, what you're getting at with like the idea of God or gods is, is a lot more interesting to me. I think that the Judeo-Christian God probably almost certainly can't exist the way it's described, but maybe some kind of being like the Q from Star Trek could exist, right? And if they did, uh, would we call them gods? And probably the more interesting question is, do they deserve to be worshipped like gods? Do gods necessitate worship? Well, not if
1: they are evolved beings that came from slime like we did. If they just appeared or have always been around and are omniscient and omnipotent, then they are gods necessarily. But if they're just some race of beings that is just massively technologically superior to us, then they may appear to be gods, but they're not gods. They're just beings. And then the question is, what created them in the first place? And, you know, the, I'm interested in going back to the, the very beginning, the very source of all this, and what created the universe. Did the universe just happen into existence? Has it always been? Is it a meaningless question to ask what was before the universe or what was outside the universe? Or can it just be easily explained by some sort of being?
2: Well, we're essentially like fourth dimensional beings, right? We operate in three dimensions of space and one of time. But if you had some being that was like a fifth or sixth dimensional being that they could not only operate in space and one direction through time, but could operate in any direction through time or view time in a completely non-contiguous matter, um, that there's there's no real distinction between being able to manipulate time and being able to be everywhere and know everything, right? So I guess like just having that attribute about them would make them very godlike to such a point where it it might like be a pointless question or limited human understanding to even think of the universe as having had a beginning
0: i find myself less interested in the beginning of the universe simply because while it's good to know our origin and it's good to have a better scientific understanding of the process that led to where we are now, the process that begun this whole thing. Um, the thing that I find more frustrating is the, what happens after you die? Like that for me is why many people cling to God and religion is because they don't, they don't know. And they're fearful of what happens when the meat bag that their brain is sat in stops functioning properly. And, There feels like people clinging to this idea that there's an afterlife because they feel it can't possibly be that they're going to stop existing at some point and that they will they will no longer be alive and that there will be it can't possibly be that they will just rot down to nothing in the ground like your dead pet that you buried years ago. Like that can't possibly be the case. And I feel like people cling to religion and and God as a way to make them feel okay about the fact that their insignificant existence will be extinguished within a 100 years of them being born. And that's something humans find very difficult to deal with. Yet, they have no problem dealing with the fact that before they were born, they didn't exist. Like, I talk to my kids all the time about, or not all the time, that would be a bit weird, but I, I talk to the kids sometimes about our life before they were born and holidays we went on. And it's a difficult concept for them to grasp that there was a point in time when they didn't exist. And there will be a point in time in the future when they do not exist other than in the memory of other people and and as a bunch of crap in the ground. Well, you see, that's the thing. Like, I, I don't
1: agree that they didn't exist before they were born and that they will cease to exist. Because all of the molecules and atoms and everything that are in them right now existed way before they were born billions of years
0: that's tenuous that ham sandwich i made yesterday didn't exist before i made it yesterday yes the bread existed the day before at the baker's and yes the ham existed in the shop three days before that and yes three weeks before that there was a pig and before that there was the pig's parents and you could go back and back and back and back and back but my children as solid entities that walk and talk and leave their washing on the floor and don't empty the dishwasher, those things did not exist 20 years ago. The atoms were in the universe, sure, but they didn't exist. And their consciousness didn't exist. And I think that's the thing that people have difficulty dealing with, is that there was a time when they didn't exist and there will be a, a, a time in the future when they don't exist. And humans are notoriously bad at dealing with their insignificance in the world. And I think that's why they cling to this, this idea that there's something bigger than them and they're, they're part of some bigger scheme. And when they're, when they get hit by a bus or when they, get cancer and die in a hospital with all their loved ones around them, they rise up and, you know, off they go to heaven and everything's going to be okay. And it's all a load of bullshit.
1: Well, let me counter that uh, by clutching at straws by saying, what What if the universe is conscious and what if all consciousness is linked? And you know, we are all necessarily from one point. As Well, that's our understanding that the Big Bang was like one point of almost infinite density and everything that exists, whether it's the bottle of cider that I'm drinking, the microphone I'm speaking into, or your children's thoughts, all came from this one point. And therefore, we are all connected. And maybe when you die, you sort of return to that collective consciousness rather than the illusion of individual
2: consciousness. Wouldn't that necessitate that every generation has fewer consciousnesses? than the last generation because <laughs> of thermodynamics and stuff.
0: <laughs> well, don't get all physics on me, Dad.
2: Like, shit, I'm less conscious than my grandparents. Is that why
0: we're getting dumber? Because there's less of it to go around and there's more people. Do we need to do a Thanos-style snap in order to get rid of half the population in order to reset us back to cleverness again? Yes.
1: So in terms of why I don't actually believe in any of that, and I was just playing devil's advocate, is because Dawkins convinced me, right, with one very powerful argument, and that is about simplicity and complexity. If you look around at the world that we can observe, the universe that we can observe, and Dan sort of touched on it with the entropy stuff, complex things come from simple beginnings. And there is a a one-way arrow, as far as we can see, from simplicity to complexity, and that's like the crux of entropy, as far as I understand it and therefore if you had some sort of god some sort of ultimate being then that being is necessarily complex and therefore must have come from a simpler beginning and the argument for god is that god has always been there and you know is omniscient omnipotent um, and omnipresent and all of that and and exists outside of time somehow You can't have God without God being complex. God is a complex concept. And if complex things come from simplicity, then God can't exist. You what, mate? That is a very dumbed-down version of Dawkins' uh, (laughs) theory that I've butchered
0: massively. I'm convinced. But doesn't that make sense to you? Uh, If you buy that uh, complexity only comes from simplicity, I I guess. Yeah, I've, I've not really thought about that a huge amount.
1: Well, the thing is, like, if you look at anything complex, it came from more simple parts. And whether that is biological with evolution, and as I said, we came from, well, probably just some sort of chemical reaction that was a catalyst for itself, although we don't actually know about that yet, but we certainly know that we came from very simple organisms that then evolved over billions of years into us. And if you look at the mixer that my microphone's plugged into that's made of plastics and metals, and it's very complex, but it came from very simple parts that were put together in a factory. And God is a very complex idea, and God was put together from very simple parts of the human consciousness, as far as I can see, that we have put together the idea of God as being this complex thing from relatively simple beginnings of us looking around this giant fucking ball in the sky that you can't look at for half of the time. And, you know, just looking around the the world and not understanding it and making this complex explanation for it when really there's a far simpler explanation and that is that there's just a bunch of laws of physics and they just are.
2: I think if I put my religious schoolboy hat on that I would say that causality didn't exist until god created it joe
1: (laughs) well you could argue that if such a thing as god existed then the laws of physics were created by that being and therefore yeah things like causality and entropy didn't exist before he she it whatever made them but that just seems a bit spurious to me and maybe that's just filtered through my Experience as a human, my tiny brain. You know, Russell Brand always says that um trying to understand this sort of stuff is like his cat trying to understand the internet. It's just not going to happen. We're just not equipped to understand it, at least yet. And so maybe this is all just a completely fucking pointless um, discussion. And uh, maybe the idea that anyone's other than us
0: are ever going to use Linux on the desktop is also equally pointless. I hate that you draw parallels between. Organized religion and computer software. (laughs) You know it's true. Uh, Well, no.
1: (laughs) No. It's like that Flat Earth documentary, Behind the Curve. I presume you've all seen that, right? Yes, yes. You cannot have been watching that and not seen the fucking parallels
0: between that community and ours. You can look at any enthusiast's of anything, whether it's campanology or Subaru imprezzas. And there are people who are really super passionate about that thing. And it is the best thing. And all other things are rubbish. And you will always find people like that. People who are obsessive about something. Are obsessive about something, whatever that thing is. And I and while you might draw parallels because some of the people in those documentaries about Flat Earth who have strong beliefs about a particular worldview look a bit like some of the people in the Linux community and behave socially like some of the people in the Linux community. I don't think you should draw that parallel simply because it's the same of any community of people who are passionate about a thing. And they're all wrong, We're all right. <laughs> <laughs>